we're going to be talking this morning about why long for the resurrection. And uh, we're going to jump into that, and, and I want to think about what was Paul's key motivation. And we referred to a verse last week um, in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, we are groaning for our resurrection. And I just got, was thinking this week a little bit more, had a great conversation with Darren and M- Michelle about that. Why do we groan for the resurrection? <laughs> you know what's amazing is Paul in Romans chapter 7 talked about um, why he was groaning for the resurrection in chapter 8. He says that, but he's laying the foundation for that in chapter 7. So we're going to look at that, and then if we have a chance, we're going to talk about how we are motivated. Our resurrection reminds us that other people are going to be resurrected, and that uh, makes us long for our, our resurrection, but man, it motivates us to be about the business of redemption. So the main reason, I'll just give you the punchline right up front, the main reason that we long for the resurrection is because it's going to com- accompany the end of our struggle with sin. You know, uh, I, I talked about how uh, the resurrection body was going to be amazing because um, I could eat and not get fat. And, you know, that, that's awesome, but as I was talking with Darren and Michelle, I thought to myself, that's true, and it's wonderful. But that is not the main reason that we are longing for the resurrection. And, uh, and Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 15, he ends the chapter with this. In verse 53, he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he's going to talk about that issue of death. And we think about physical death, but physical death is proof of a different kind of death. He says this in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain and so you see that connection between sin and that paul says that that motivates us to be always working because we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. And sometimes uh, we see our own personal struggle with sin, and we feel like, when is that going to be gone? And we're working on it, and it doesn't always feel like we're winning. Have you ever been fighting the battle of sin and you were feeling like you were losing? Or we're trying to minister to the people around us who we see dominated and damaged by sin. And we work hard and we're disciplined and we're praying and we're pleading and and we're hoping that God will do something. And we look at it and it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. Have you ever been there? But God says that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. And and the resurrection is something that motivates us in that. So um, when I was a new pastor, um, I'd been in a church for Oh, you know, probably two or three years, and our, our lead pastor left, and we got um, an associate pastor, was not an associate pastor, interim pastor, and that gentleman came and was at our church for four and a half years while we looked for a pastor, and when it was all done, we finally found a lead pastor, but after that four and a half year search, we thought, you know, there's a lot of permanent pastors that don't stay somewhere for four and a half years. But one of the things about this old guy is, is uh, he, had, he had been a, a professor, he was my, one of my Bible professors in college, he taught the book of Romans, and um, he had such a great personality, he was this older guy and he loved kids, and I remember one time going into the office and he's got like, somebody let their kids wander up into the office, and he's got these kids jumping off of chairs in the office, flapping their arms, and I'm listening to him talk to these kids, and he's just saying, have your parents ever taught you to fly? And he says, you know, flying's hard. You got to jump off the chair and you got to practice. And if you flap your arms and practice enough, you'll be able to fly. And so he's got these little kids doing that. I'm thinking, man, these parents are never going to let their kids escape into the office again. But he just had such a great uh, personality in that way. But one of the things I recall is shortly after he left our church, 
Uh, we hired a lead pastor, and he, he stepped out. His wife got leukemia, and uh, everybody prayed for her, and then she passed away. And so his wife passed away, and so this, this old guy had been married for so long, was then by himself, and uh, then he got cancer. And it, just, just watching how cancer impacted him and seeing him come to the end of his life, and uh, just before he retired, he continued teaching, and he knew that he was about to die. And so uh, he ended up preaching the graduation, um, that next year's graduation. They actually named a dorm after, his name was C.W. Smith, and they named a dorm after him at Master's College. But, um, but he preached this sermon, and I was just thinking about um, what really stood out to me is um, his excitement about dying and going to heaven. And, uh, and, and he, in the sermon that he preached, um, it, it's interesting in my sermon prep class, the sermon prep teacher used to always say that you need to preach like a dying man to dying men because you're dying and all the people you're talking to are dying. And, uh, and there needs to be that sense of urgency. And, and I just think about this sermon. It was literally a sermon from a dying man to dying men. And uh, he said, uh, I've for 50 years been teaching my students this. And he said, I want to teach you how to, uh, I've been teaching people how to live, and now I get a chance to teach you how to die. And, um, and he told me about cancer. Um, he just said that cancer is uh, the greatest way to go. He says, it's an incredible gift. And, and he's like, if, if, if I could pick any way to die, I would want to have cancer. Like, there's, there's a lot of way that, ways that people die. But he said cancer is the best way for a person to die. And he said the reason that he was so thankful for it is he said a lot of times when people die, you know, they, they might die suddenly and they don't have a chance to prepare. They don't have a chance to have conversations with people. They don't have a chance to work everything out. And he says, Roger, I've known I've been dying for a while and I see that day coming close and I've had every important conversation with every single person that I need to talk to, and I've taken care of every detail in this life. And he's just saying, man, if there's ever a good way to die, it's to be able to die from cancer. And, and just seeing him as, as he got old and eventually he couldn't walk and he was in a wheelchair, and, um, and just seeing the way that the Lord worked in his life. Um, but this was, I want to just tell you, I'm going to give you a few of the points of his sermon. But he just said, um, uh, he said, how do you live? He said, learn to live under the love and trust the sovereignty of God. That gives you stability and peace. Second thing he said was, learn to live enjoying the grace of God. And just that we enjoy that. Learn to stay close to the word of God. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, don't go beyond what is written. Um, and then he said this, and, and you probably are going to say, oh, I bet this guy influenced you, Roger. Um, he says, learn to read your Bible. He says, don't explain what the Bible means until you know what the Bible says. The most important question is, what does it say? And, you know, how do I think about that? What does 100-pound hailstones falling out of the sky mean? <laughs> it means what it says 100 pound hailstones falling out of the sky and so many people talk about what the bible means and they completely depart from what it says um he says learn the power of the church just go to church and show up every week develop a passion for holiness and develop a heart for prayer like that's what he had to say coming to the end of his life about how to live and then this is what he said about dying he said, you need to accept death as natural in this fallen world. Everybody dies. It's not abnormal. It's normal. It's going to happen to every single one of us. He said, make preparations for your death with biblical priorities. Think about what the things God says is important as you're preparing to die. And then he said, say goodbye knowing that in a short time we'll be reunited. So one of the things that stood out to me for C.W., he's this old, old guy that was really just a very faithful guy, very intelligent, um, and had been just teaching for so many years. But, when, but he was, you know that, that same part of his personality that talked to kids about 
jumping off the chairs and flapping their arms. Um, when he was talking about passing away, and I actually thought about this, I heard this sermon 21 years ago, and I, and I still remember the glee in his voice when he talked about dying and just saying, I can't wait to just be able to fly, and, and just the things that he learned about the, about the resurrection body and how exciting that was to him, and he was, talked about all those things that he was looking forward to. But then he ended with like the most emotional part of what he said was that um, I'm most looking forward to being free from my struggle with sin. And, um, and for him, when he thought about his resurrection, when he thought about his death, getting sin out of his life was his greatest passion. And you know what's interesting where Paul's talking in Romans 8 about groaning um, for a resurrection, groaning to be clothed with his resurrection, it follows Paul's discussion of his own struggle with sin. And so I, I want to just, I want to read that to you. And, and this is one of the great things that I love about the Bible as we read it, is we learn things that are true. And, and also, as we read the Bible, there's a lot of things that are kind of conflicting and they're challenging. And we think to ourselves, how can this be true? And how can that be true? Um, like, how is it that we make real choices and yet God sovereignly chooses us? It's like some people want to just discount part of what the Bible says about stuff. But if you read the Bible, you actually learn how these things are true and how they fit together. And, and the foundation for understanding of all theology is do you know what the Bible says before you start talking about what the Bible means? And one of the things I love about Romans is Romans explains how we think about life. So Romans chapter 1 through 3, it begins with the gospel and just talking about the power, how powerful Jesus is. And then the end of Romans 1 explains why the world is in such trouble. And then the rest of Romans chapter 2 and 3 talk about how Gentiles who don't know God are lost. And then it talks about how the religious Jews who know God are lost. And then it talks about how everybody in the world is lost. So it just talks about sin and the impact that has had on the world. And nobody reading Romans chapter 1 looks at our world and is confused about what is happening or why it is happening. And then in chapter 4 and 5, um, Paul talks about how Jesus came to solve this problem through faith and that while we're sinners, Jesus died for us. Man, nobody would die for a righteous... You know, nobody would... Few people would die for a righteous person. Maybe somebody would die for a righteous person. But Jesus came and died for us while we were sinners. Jesus was the one that initiated salvation. So that's Romans 4 and 5 and that we get saved through faith. And then Romans chapter 6 talks about how um, we are no longer slaves to sin. Chapter 5 ends with God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it just says the more you sin, the more of God's grace there is for you. And then Romans 6 starts with, well, should we then just continue in sin that grace might increase? And Paul says, um, may it never be. How can those of us who have died to sin still live in it? Like, that's not possible. Uh, you are no longer a slave to sin. And then you think about that. If you're a Christian, that should inform you and how you think about your life and how you think about the world and how you understand what salvation is, right? Uh, James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. People who say, I believe in Jesus and just live in sin, they're not believers. And so we have died to sin. We are no longer slaves to it. But then Paul jumps right into Romans chapter 7. And that's what I want to read today. Are you a Christian? I mean, if you are, you still have problems with sin in your life. <laughs> yeah, okay, some of you guys are saying yes. Uh, you don't have to keep that a secret. We know you have problems with sin. Uh, I want to read what Paul says about Romans 7, and this is what his, informs his desire to be resurrected. So Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Let's read this together. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. 
So he's going to talk about how sin is connected to his flesh. It's connected to his body. That includes our brain. And it's not that matter is evil and the spirit is good and there's all kinds of bizarre philosophies about those things, but our sinfulness is wrapped up in our physical body and in our mind and, and all that stuff. It plays these, it, these things all play together. And Paul's talking about his sinful flesh. So you are made new spiritually. You know, people talk about like Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before you were a Christian, you were spiritually dead. And then when you became a Christian, you were made spiritually alive. But even though you're spiritually alive, you have remaining flesh. That's what Paul's talking about. It's, our, it's, it's related to our physical body, to our mind, to the struggles that we have in this world. And he goes on, I don't understand my own actions. Verse 15, for I don't know, I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever been there? Where you don't want to sin, you want to do the right thing, but you find yourself doing the wrong thing. Um, I know that if I, if I do what I do not want, that I agree with the, with the law that is good. So he's just saying, you know, I know that in my heart I agree that what God says is right is right, and I want to do what's right. Verse 16, now if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul lives with this struggle that he still has sin dwelling within him. And he's looking forward to the day that his, his being made righteous is completed where he gets this body. He goes on and he says, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I just got to tell you guys, when, when we think about life, it is so important that we think rightly about what the Bible says about these things. Because it explains the world, it explains what we should expect, what we should expect of ourselves, what we, what we should expect of others. Have you ever known people that just say, oh man, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there? And, and I just think, well, okay. Um, you know, you go, you go to football games and baseball games, even though there's hypocrites there, you go to the grocery store and there's <laughs> hypocrites there, so you don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites there. And then I also think to myself, um, where would be the best place in the world for hypocrites to go? It seems like you'd try to find every hypocrite you could find and say, you should go to church. Maybe you could get help there. So church is a place where we come and we all got problems. And, and sometimes you could ask yourself, why do such terrible things happen in the church? And one of the things, like you guys know my answer to this, it's because often Satan puts plants in churches who aren't Christians, and they do wicked, terrible things in God's name. And then we think to ourselves, why do bad things happen at church? It's because there's lots of, lots of non-Christians in the church, and every once in a while their behavior shows who they are. And so there's unbelievers in the church, not just believers, but also <laughs> bad things happen in church because Christians do bad things. Um, Christians still have a sinful flesh. Are we shocked when things, when people do things that they shouldn't do? When we look at sin and different things like that, it is not a surprise to us. You know how Paul, when he's talking about all this stuff, talks about Adam? Adam was a real person who fell and who sinned. And when he sinned, he became sinful and he caused the fall of the human race. So all of us are born sinners because of Adam. So we're not surprised that the world is sinful or that we struggle with sin um, because that's what God tells us. And, and so this is, and this is Paul saying you are no longer a slave to sin. See, here's the deal. Before you're a Christian, you're a slave to sin. You actually can't stop sinning. You can only trade one sin for a different sin. 
It's not like a non-Christian can't go to AA and quit getting drunk. That happens. There's non-Christians that look at things in their life and deal with them. Uh, Michelle and I, when we were newly married, lived, lived next door to this hell's angel. And uh, he, he went to prison for years for all the bad stuff that he was doing. And he finally got out of prison and his driver's license has been suspended for five years after he got out of prison. And every single day, I would go out in my yard and talk to this guy, and he was like rebuilding this car, and he's welding it all together and all the stuff, and he's like, my license is suspended, and I can't drive, and I'm not going to drive. I'm going to wait until legally. He's like, I completely changed my life. I am no longer a hell's angel. Um, I have left that life behind. I am, I'm having a new life, and he was so diligent not to break any laws. And uh, one of the things he told me, he's like, you know, I knew a lot of guys in prison, and it's like they found God. They needed God to help change their life. And he's like, I changed my life on my own. I didn't need God to change my life. And so he became a moral person. And he did all these things. And he was a good friend of mine. We used to go dirt bike riding all the time. And uh, he felt like he didn't need God to help him change. And guess what? There's all kinds of non-Christians that can change things about their life. But they just trade one sin for a different sin. And um, for Christians, we actually have the ability spiritually to do what God calls us to do with a right heart, with a desire to please Him. There's good people that don't know God, but they sin in the good things that they do. And then there are Christians who are freed from the power of sin, but who are not freed from the presence of sin. So we actually have the ability to not sin. So um, James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, it says this. It says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then... Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and, when, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. So that's one of the things for us as Christians is we realize, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, the devil made me do it? Did you know you don't need the devil to make you do bad things? You have bad things within you. Uh, your, your sin is inside, and it will carry you away, and it'll entice you, and your, your sinful desires will lead you to sin. And here's one of the things we know, is that when sin is accomplished, when you start living a sinful life, like think about all the people who are like, God's gracious, God will forgive me, I can sin, and God is so merciful, and so the more I sin, the more of God's grace there is. For us as Christians, man, we're afraid of sin. We realize that I got this sin in me that's pulling me to the wrong things. And if I do those things, those things bring forth death. And so we're afraid of sin. We're diligent about sin. You remember what Jesus said about that, right? If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. You need to get radical about getting sin out of your life. And how many Christians do you know that are so full of God's grace that they just bring sin into their life and they just live a life of sin? But see, for us as believers, we know how destructive sin is. And we know that sin is with us, in us. And that's actually why you think about uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, you ever heard somebody say, I can handle it? See, Christians who read the Bible don't say, I can handle it. You ever heard people say, oh yeah, all my friends are sinful and they're a bad influence, but I can hang out with them because I'm strong enough. And we just think, well, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. See, Christians realize that sin is in them, and sin then will, will pull them to the wrong place. Have you ever seen people who are, they're, they're, uh, they're young people and they're dating, and uh, they will like go hang out with each other alone? They have all these romantic feelings for one another, and then they go hang out alone, and they're just like, no, we can handle it. See, Christians don't do that. 
Christians realize, and I'm not saying you're a non-Christian if you do that, I'm saying you're a foolish Christian. Um, a, a Christian who reads and thinks about the Bible says, I really like you and you really like me, and so am I gonna, we going to go hang out in, in one of our houses at 10 o'clock at night with no one else there? No, that would be stupid. Um, because sin is within us and Satan's there to tempt us and sin is destructive and we're not going to do that. And, and when you have friends that are Christians watching you do stupid things that will lead you to spiritual destruction, your Christian friends come alongside and go, dude, what are you doing? Why are you going there? And you say, I can handle it. And they say, were well, you an idiot? Read this verse. So when we think about life and the struggle that we have as believers, we take it seriously. If we're struggling with alcoholism, we don't have a bunch of alcohol in our closet and we just think, I can handle it. We think to ourselves, these things cause me a problem. I need to get them out of my life. And so we know that sin is in us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So verse 12 just says, don't ever say, I can handle it. When you say, I can handle it, that is the moment you're going down. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the foolish things that people say right before they crash. But then the important thing is what happens here in verse 13. Because it goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You ever face the temptation and think, this is harder for me than it is for anyone else. Nobody else knows what I'm going through. You don't have this struggle, so you can't understand me. By the way, that's the lie that is told the LGBTQ community. These struggles you have, no straight person can understand because they don't feel the same struggles you have. We're the only ones that can understand you. That is a bunch of baloney. There is no temptation that has seized anybody that is not common to man. Nobody faces anything that other people don't face. And when you think to yourself that your sin struggle is unique, different, more powerful, or that other believers can't help you, you're wrong. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We all face the same kinds of things. And it's not always the exact same things, but it's the same principles. Like, what would you say if somebody said, you know... I really struggle with lust toward people with blonde hair. And you, my friend, only struggle with lust toward people with brown hair. You could never help me. You could never understand me. We're not in the same category of struggle. Uh, you no, know, you want to know something? There is no temptation that has seized anyone that is not common to man. And here's another thing. God supernaturally protects people. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God supernaturally stops you from facing temptation that's too hard. And then I love the next verse. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee. Okay, our response to know that you're weak, know that God supernaturally protects you and you're not going through anything unique, so run. That's like the, the person who says, I can hang out really late at night with the person I'm dating because God will supernaturally protect me. No, you're supposed to flee. You're supposed to run away from that. And so we understand this about sin and Paul's talking about this the way that he struggles with sin, so we realize as Christians we don't have to struggle with sin, but there's this reality that we do. And then he goes on in verse 21, so I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members the, another law waging war in the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So Paul is like starting his longing. I want sin out of my life. Who's going to free me from this? By the way, he's a believer when he's saying this. And then he says in verse 25, But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, 
but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. (laughs) Read this next verse, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, we have forgiveness. God is not condemning us. We struggle with sin. Other people struggle with sin. This is not a shock. This is not a surprise. When, when we see sin in ourselves, when we see sin in others, it doesn't surprise us. We realize that's the reality of the world that we live in, but that doesn't make us less diligent in our fight against sin. It doesn't make us foolish in our fight against sin. It doesn't make us just ignore all those other things that God tells us. And then chapter 8 is awesome because it just is talking about the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit in our life to empower us, the way the Holy Spirit prays for us, the guarantee that we have in salvation. By the way, God's election and sovereignty in salvation, that He foreknows people, that He sees them and knows them personally, and then He chooses them for salvation. And it just goes through this list of God knowing people, God choosing people, and then God glorifying people. It's like all the steps of salvation spoken about in the past tense. And it's just God taking this doctrine that God is the one who saves people and emphasizing how that gives us confidence. It gives us peace. It's how we know that God loves us and that in the end, it's all going to be okay. And that nothing can separate us from God's love. You know, like a lot of these doctrinal things that people fight over, they forget to read what the Bible says in the context. And, and when we deny things that the Bible teaches, we miss out on powerful encouragements that God gives us. And that's Romans chapter 8. Read it. It's amazing, the whole thing. So, why do we long for our resurrection? <laughs> because when we're resurrected, that's going to be like our struggle with sin's going to be over. And I think about C.W. Smith. How could you be this, this, this old man that suffered the loss of his wife and all these things have gone on in his life and he's standing there preaching a sermon and then saying, I can't wait to be in heaven and all these fun things my body's going to be able to do and I'm finally going to be free from sin. And I know that all you friends of mine will see each other soon because life's a vapor. You know, that's how God intends us to get to the end of our life. And one of the things that our resurrection and that excitement reminds us of is that other people have a resurrection too. And uh, that should inspire and motivate and inform how we approach life. We're looking forward to our resurrection. And the second thing that is super important is that our resurrection compels us to consider others. And, um, you know, there are going to be resurrections. You know, we remember that, you know, the Old Testament saints who died, <laughs> they're going to have a resurrection. Your family members who died, if they are believers, we're comforted. They're going to have a resurrection. And everybody who doesn't know the Lord is also going to have a resurrection. And that's not something to look forward to. That's something to be terrified of. And uh, so we need to think about that. Now, I want to talk about the book of Revelation, and I'm going to just quickly, I'm going to read you a few things. Um, you know, I, I told you some time ago, I'd tell you why I was a premillennialist instead of a amillennialist or a postmillennialist. And it's because Revelation 19 comes before Revelation 20. And so that means Revelation 19 is before Revelation 20. And if Revelation 19 is about the return of Christ, and Revelation 20 is about the millennium, then that means we believe in a pre-millennial return of Christ. And you know what? That kind of stuff's easy to say, right? Like, I can get up here and give you that theology. How about if we actually just read it? Before you talk about what something means, uh, figure out what does it actually say? You know, there are so many doctrinal problems we have that would be solved if we just looked at what the Bible said instead of trying to take some meaning and push it onto something that the Bible doesn't say. And uh, so I just want to say, you know, the first thing I want to say about why 
I believe that there's going to be a, resur- uh, um, a premillennial return of Christ is that there are promises for the nation of Israel that have not happened yet. When you read Revelation chapter 1 through 3, the church is mentioned, I forget exactly, but I think like 19 times. And when you read Revelation 4 through 19, the church isn't mentioned. There's lots of stuff about Israel. So you got three chapters about the church, you got 4 through 19 is about Israel, and then the church gets mentioned again at the very end. And I think about the promises that God made to the nation of Israel. And Paul, by the way, was motivated by the resurrection as it related to other people. He says this in Romans 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Okay, when he says kinsmen according to the flesh, he's talking about Jews the children of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, I just got to tell you, Paul's a better person than me. I love lots of people, but I would not be willing to go to hell for anyone I know. And I got to tell you, I love my kids, but (laughs) I would not be willing to go to hell for my kids. Now, I'd be willing to sacrifice any of the things in this life for my kids, um, but I would not be willing to go to hell for my kids. Um, but I pray for them, and I would sacrifice anything other than that. But Paul says he wished himself accursed um, that his Jewish brothers could be saved. In verse chapter 11, Romans 11, 1, he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So some people say, oh, God's rejected the Jews because they rejected Jesus, so now it's the church. Has God rejected his people? Well, we should see what does the Bible say before we start talking about what it means. Has God rejected his people? By no means. Okay, well, it's said that. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Same words that God uses talking about salvation. Um, Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, I don't know. What does the Bible say? Well, it says, By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Is there a church? Yes. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. God is working through the church. We we are not doing old, we're not living the Old Testament like Jews. We're the church. And so there is a church. Why? To make Israel jealous. And then in verse 17 of chapter 11, if some of the branches were broken off, okay, that's some of the Jewish people. They've been broken off because of their unfaithfulness. Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others. Uh, By the way, that's us. We're the wild olive shoot, the Gentiles. It says, uh, now cherishing, nourishing from the root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 23, and even they, and here's something for you to know, people are not saved because, just because they're Jews. It says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So the Jews, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has power to graft them in. For if you are cut off um, from what is by nature a, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their olive tree? Uh, verse 25 of Romans 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Who's Israel? He's been talking about all the natural branches, the unnatural branches. Some people want to say, no, Israel's talking about the church. No, this is a contrast between Israel and the church. So Israel can't be the church, or where's the contrast? Like, you can't read this passage and think Israel's the church. This is obviously a contrast between the two. So before we think about what it means, we should think about what does it say? And then it says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Who? Israel. Enemies. 
So Israel's not Christians because Christians aren't enemies. Um, but as regards election, God choosing them, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown you they may also now receive. And so we are told here that God has a future for Israel. But the question is, Israel has to come to repentance. Well, how and when does that happen? That's what the book of Revelation is about. Chapter 1-3 through three is about the church. The rapture happens. And then chapter 4-19, through 19, the church is not on the earth. We've been resurrected. And chapter 4-19 through 19 is what God does to get the attention of the nation of Israel. And so, he is, all hell is breaking loose on earth. And the first three and a half years of the, of the tribulation is hard. And then the second half of the tribulation is harder. And, and it is as God sends these two witnesses uh, to preach the gospel to the Jews. He saves 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from each tribe. What is Revelation about? The Jews. And so God saves them in Revelation 4-19. through 19. They repent. They come back to Christ. And the Antichrist and all his forces um, are getting ready to wipe out the Jews who have come to faith. And just as they're about to wipe out these Jews, Jesus comes back. That's the second coming. So let's read that in Revelation 19 because before we talk about what things mean, we should figure out what it says. Okay. Revelation 19, the Antichrist and all his forces is there. It says, Revelation starts with everyone in heaven is rejoicing because God's going to judge all these people who have rebelled against him. Um, there's worship in heaven. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the church. So that's all happening up in heaven. And then Jesus comes back in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and true. I wonder who this is. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I was talking to somebody who says, you know, God seems so hard, but Jesus seems so loving. <laughs> I was just saying, um, by the way, God's loving. God loves you. God saves you. In fact, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. God loves you. Now, Jesus is loving, and the more we see the love of Jesus, we need to be reminded that God the Father loves us the same way, and so does the Holy Spirit. When we look at the judgment of God, we need to be reminded that Jesus is also a judge. And it says this, verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire, on His head are many diadems, and has, He has a name written that nobody knows but Himself, he is clothed in a white robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white purple were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so Jesus is coming, and he is going to rule with the rod of iron. If you read the Old Testament, what was the promise to Israel? There's going to be a king who is going to rule with the rod of iron. That's what the Jews were expecting when Jesus came the first time. That's what was so shocking about His crucifixion. Were all the ways that in the Old Testament they said Jesus is going to come and rule with an everlasting rule and ultimate authority and power. And the Jews thought, well, this is the day Jesus is going to wipe out the Romans. But what we find out is no. That is what happens in Revelation 19 when He comes back the second time. 
And then it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly directly overhead. And he said, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all the men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the white horse and on his army. You ever um, meet people who shake their fist in God's face? Um, that happens over and over and over. There's lots of people who do that. Remember Nebuchadnezzar when he's looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, I'm a mighty powerful king, and uh, you better do what I say or you're going to die. He thought he was pretty powerful. And when you read that story, you'll figure out how that turned out. I want to know who intimidates you. Does the IRS intimidate you? Does the police department intimidate you? Does Governor Newsom intimidate you? When there's various people that want to tell you you're not allowed to go to church because of COVID or whatever else thing they're going to try to come up with, that, that going to intimidate you? And, and it's so important for us to think about this and understand this because there are moments where people die. You read Hebrews chapter 11, and there were faithful prophets who were killed in this life. You know, we read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's not how it went for them. That is not how it went for Daniel. But there are plenty of times that it didn't go well for people. The apostles, Paul, his head got cut off. Um, all the disciples except John were killed. And so, um, but I'll tell you, for every single one of them, they were not afraid of the government, of the authority, of the power. You're not afraid of the crowds. When you go to work and, and somebody says, you're going to use these pronouns in referring to people or you're going to be fired, or you have to go do this. I just talked to a police officer um, this week who his boss told him last time there was the COVID things, he was told in his area that he had to go enforce these mandates and stop people from going to work and stop people from going to church. You want to know what that police officer said? He said, um, God tells people to work and God tells people to go to church. And I will not go stop people from going to work or going to church um, because God's the one who's in charge. And secondly, it's a violation of the First Amendment. But his primary thing was he looked at his boss with his job on the line, even though he had a family that he had to support, and he just said, no, I'm not afraid of you. And things turned out well for him. They didn't fire him. Uh, they gave him a different job. And um, when we think about how all this stuff wraps up, it informs how we think and how we approach life and what we are willing to sacrifice. And then it says in verse 20, And the beast was captured with a false prophet, who was in his presence, who had done the signs which he delivered, which, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on a horse. And all the birds were there, were gorged with their flesh. A bunch of birds eating dead animals. Okay, so people, dead people. Like, this is a brutal scene. And here's what I want you to know. You could be there at this moment. Because the rapture happens, and then there's seven years of tribulation, and then this happens. If the rapture happened tomorrow, you could live through the tribulation. It would be radical. There's times a quarter of the earth is going to die and another time a third of the earth is going to die. So there's going to be lots of death. There's going to be radical destruction. But if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you could personally be there for this. And if you live this period of time without being a Christian, and if you survived the tribulation and you were not a Christian, then you would be executed by Jesus. If in the tribulation period you came to Christ, then you would be one of the ones that Jesus was coming to save. 
Um, one of the reasons I like teaching people in church this, and one of the reasons I've taught this to youth ministry, a lot of people are like, what do we need to study end times for? And why do we need to talk about this stuff? And it's all going to pan out in the end. And I just think to myself, if I have an opportunity to speak to somebody who's going to actually be there on this day, I want to tell them what they're going through and how this is going to turn out so that they can make a decision. Because it's not just the things we say to people at the moment. We get to tell people things before they face them. So this stuff's important. And all the people that just want to make stuff up and say none of this happens and it all happened somewhere else, sometime else, and in 70 AD all the stuff in Revelation happened. No. This stuff is future and there's a lot of good reasons for that and it should inspire us and motivate us to teach people what the Bible says. Um, some people, their idea of sharing the gospel and blessing and encouraging people is to say, God loves you and he doesn't make any junk. And I'm just telling you, that's not going to be as helpful as if you read this stuff and you explain it, and as people are living through it, they realize this is all the stuff that God said was going to happen, and it's happening. And it's going to be so much more meaningful and, and I'm just telling you, when all hell's breaking loose, um, people aren't going to remember that you said, God loves you and he doesn't make junk. Um, what people are going to remember is that you taught them actually the details of what the Bible said. They're going to remember that you said, you're a sinner, God loves you, God made a way of salvation, but there will be hell to pay if you don't submit to God. And everybody's like, don't give that message. People don't like that. That's unkind. People won't want to hear it. Are you kidding me? That's what people need to hear because that's what's real. And that's what's going to matter when these things happen. But we're so afraid to hurt anybody's feelings. And we're so pressured by our culture that we shut up because we're afraid that we may get hurt at work or that people won't like us when we should be reading and teaching the Bible, and not what we think it means, but what it says. And it goes on in verse 20. Okay, so that's the second coming of Jesus. And then the millennium. Well, let me put a different, put that different chart up there. So that's a tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. And now how about the millennium? So it says that in Revelation 19. Why am I pre-millennial? Because it said that first. And then let's read Revelation 20. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Do you know what millennium means? Thousand. You know how long I think the millennium is? A really long period of time, kind of an undefined long period of time. I think it's a thousand years. Why? Because it says thousand years. And I threw him into the pit and sealed it and shut it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, all millennials say that God is reigning. The millennium is in heaven. There's no earthly millennium. And so God's reigning in heaven and he's reigning on earth, and he's reigning, in our, he's reigning on our hearts, in heaven and in our hearts, not on earth. And, uh, but how is this millennial period described? Satan's bound and thrown into the pit for a thousand years so that he may not deceive the nations. Well, what does the Bible say to people who are living right now during this period of time? What did he say to people after 70 A.D. until Jesus comes back? What did he say? Well, here's a few things. It says, um, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil no opportunity. But I thought he was bound. Um, Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Wait, I thought he was bound. Um, 2 Corinthians um, so that be forgiving, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Wait, he's bound. Um, how about this? 
Um, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Wait, he's bound in the bottomless pit. Um, 1 Peter 5, be sober in mind, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Oh, wait, he's bound in the bottomless pit um, so that he can't specifically deceive the nations. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 4, 3? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of Christ is the image of God. So do I think that the millennial period is Jesus reigning in heaven and in people's hearts and that right now Satan's bound after the Bible says all those things to us? Um, No. Revelation 19 comes first, then Revelation 20, and Revelation 20 does not describe anything that's happening right now. And it says in verse 20, chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw the thrones um, and seated on them were those whom the authority was given to judge, judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that happened, and then they came to life in the, in the millennial kingdom. Verse 25, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And at the end of this thousand years, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and that that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they will march up over a broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire um, and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they get, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is a crazy thing. Jesus is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. Uh, talk about our political problems. There aren't going to be any political problems because Jesus is going to be reigning. Talk about the bad influence of non-Christians. How does the millennium start? All the non-Christians are killed at the end of the tribulation. The only people living into the millennium are the people who are believers who survived the, the tribulation. So we have a Christian world with Jesus himself reigning. And in this period of time, people are having kids. And in a perfect society with everybody who's a believer, um, there's going to be a group of people who when Satan is released, they join Satan to fight God. So here, I'm, don't, don't like underestimate the power of Satan, but you know how Paul says we have a sinful flesh and how James says there's temptation in you? Just know this, people are bad. And in a perfect environment, people are going to rebel against God. And so we need to understand that. That informs how we understand humanity. Like what psychologist, was it Erickson, who said that people are good, we just need to keep bad influences out of their life? Like we know that's not true based on the things the Bible says. And this is the other resurrection that motivates us and that we're mindful of. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. The heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they were done, they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's where Satan would be tormented forever and ever. And that's where unbelievers will be thrown. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown 
into the lake of fire. I just want you, us all to know that our resurrection reminds us that other people will also be resurrected either to go to heaven or they will be resurrected to be cast into the lake of fire. And that motivates us and it informs how we approach life. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. And God, I just thank you that we can read the Bible, that it's understandable. And I pray that we would all be people that before we try to decide what things mean, we would think about what things actually say. And that, Lord, we would come to the right meaning. And Lord, I just thank you for just this day that we look forward to where we will be freed from the power of sin. And then we will also be freed from the presence of sin. We look forward to our resurrection God, I pray that you would give us a sense of urgency to live righteously and to reach the lost in your name. Amen.